All right, Pete Giuliano, here we are. It is um, Wednesday, the 13th of October, 2021, and that makes this... 233. Crank it in, Ralph, and crank it in, Robert. 233. 233. I'm going to drop, I'm going to minimize my screen here so I, so that I think we can see that um, we, we can see you now Pete holy cow this yeah. is this is just fantastic we're recording here anyway 233 crank it in Ralph and who was the kid who was the kid that was Robert. listening was it Robert 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 crank it in Robert too all right Pete lots of stuff to report it's been a while but we're glad to be back on the solder smoke fiber optic cable first after a long time travelogue to report we did some traveling. We were up in Massachusetts, specifically on Cape Cod. We went up. Um, we had a uh, uh, friends let us let us use their um, their beach house near Plymouth, and my son is in Boston, so we combined it with a trip to visit him and to go to the beach. And we went up to to Cape Cod, and we started out in Plymouth. From Plymouth, you're looking out across Cape Cod Bay, the whole bay out there in the hook, and you could see off in the distance the lights of the town that's at the very end of the Cape Cod Peninsula called Provincetown. It was kind of cool because it looks like it's about a 20-mile shot across the water. You're looking, you're up a little bit off sea level, they're up a little bit off sea level, so at night you could see the lights. And uh, I operated a, a little QRP station. I took the SST with me. And, uh, and ran the SST from, from Cape Cod and made one contact. It wasn't, wasn't <laughs> but it was, it was a German contact, Pete, yeah. and it was CW. And uh, so that, that, that was fun. And then when we, when we rode out, to, um, out onto the peninsula there, we stopped off at the Marconi site Ooh, at, yes. uh, out there on Cape Cod where he had one of his original uh, transmitters to go transatlantic. So that was pretty cool. But speaking of transatlantic, Pete, I think you have to explain to our listeners and viewers why this morning you are wearing a bow tie. Yes. Okay. So this all started with the GQRP virtual convention where I was the second one where I was a guest speaker. And they asked me to speak on the subject of valves, tubes, and CW. And so I... Oh, your strong suit. <laughs> yes, oh. right. So I said, well, you know, this is almost like brown shoes with a tuxedo. So I, in keeping with the tuxedo, I had some formal attire and I'm wearing my black bow tie. It's quite dashing. If, if you put your beret on, you might actually blow some fuses out there in, uh, in <laughs> yeah, internet yeah, land. Yeah. But, but that's really but, great. But, anyway, but so. I, I got few comments. I mean, it was just like it was accepted. I was supposed to have my black tie on. They, they're, they're, very, they're very calm people. They don't, they, don't, they don't react emotionally the way we do, Pete. And so <laughs> they probably just took it all in stride, oh. stiff upper lip and all that. Or, or how perfect. <laughs> or if, finally, we have someone who's appropriately dressed for yes. the GQRP club convention. Um, all right, we'll, we'll talk about the convention and your speech there and your, 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 your return to thermotrons and continuous wave Ooh, yes. morse telegraphy in in a moment but but i i wanted to mention something at the outset we we i spotted something on the internet that was kind of interesting i've 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 been a a big fan of rod newkirk w9brd who used to write the uh, house dx column for qst magazine 
I, I just love that columnist. It was one of the, one of my real introductions to to radio to amateur radio, you know, because he'd always have these, you know, these these reports coming in from Vlad down at Vostok Station, talking about you know life down there at the at the South Pole and things like that. Very very cool. Um, his son David Newkirk now has his call, and David is quite a prolific writer and home brewer himself. But I, I went to his website, and he there was a little article in there in which he was looking back at some of his dad's early QSL cards, and he he noticed that along the bottom there was the standard set of letters that you'd see DXCC, RCC for the Rag Chewers Club, A1 Operators Club, all these that worked all states, worked all continents, WAC, WAS, but then there was one acronym that he did not recognize. WFSRA, WFSRA. It appeared on several of the of the uh, of the uh, the QSL cards, and I see a, a quizzical look on your face. Yeah, and you didn't know about it either. Neither no. did I. No. All right. It stands for the um, World Friendship Society of Radio Amateurs. Hmm. The, the World Friendship Society of Radio Amateurs, the WFSRA. This is something that popped up in the 1930s, and it was largely in response to the, uh, to the carnage and bloodshed of World War I. This was in the interwar period, and there were a lot of these kind of um, international peace and understanding organizations that popped up. The WFSRA with, was one of them. And now, to join the WFSRA, all you had to do was to write out and sign with your uh, signature and call sign the following um, statement. It's the sole obligation for membership in the society. Quote, I hereby promise that I will, to the best of my ability, make such use of my amateur radio station as will be conducive to international friendships that I will never voluntarily permit my station to be used as the tool of selfish nationalistic interests, Ooh. and that I will do what I can as a radio amateur and as an individual to promote world peace and understanding to be followed by the signature, address, and station call sign. Membership in the society is open to all amateurs in all countries. All that is necessary to become a member is to copy and sign the pledge and send it to the secretary, Dwayne McGill, W9DQD, 730 North 6th Street, Grand Junction, Colorado. Been there. USA. Copies are preferably to be made in English or French, but they may be made in the language of the member. Ooh. So, WFSRA. And, and that occurred at a oh, curious... Pete, you're, you're, hold on, wait a second. Hold on, i got to jiggle my, my knob here. Can you hear me? Yeah. Okay, good. I'm having problems with that. Ahead. That occurred at a curious time in history in the 1930s. Yeah, yeah. Oh, man, lots lot happening in the world. Wow. In the inter interwar period. But anyway, the mystery is solved. WFSRA, and I'll report later on, we have at least one new member. We'll talk about that when we get to the mailbag. Who? Uh, it's still active? <laughs> we may be reactivating it. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> I think it's 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 sort of similar in spirit to our IBEW, the International oh, yeah, Brotherhood yeah, yeah. of Electronic uh, Wizards. Yeah. Okay. But anyway, but speaking of wizards, Pete, you have been very active, and let's turn now to what's on Pete's bench. Okay. Uh, first, I'll start with the pimp. 
That's I love the pimp. I mean, I, I want to say, okay, tell him what the pimp is, and then I'll take credit. Okay, Joe Koleski, W4IMP, came up with this three-tube transmitter. And you spoke about SSB, that. SSB transmitter. SSB. You talked about it in the last podcast. Right. So I said, okay, maybe I ought to try my hand at that. And you said, oh, that's Pete's imp, the pimp. I <laughs> I, I said I, I actually warned against it. I said we have to be careful because the rig is known as the imp because W four IMP. And then I said if 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 ever people start referring to it as Pete's imp, it'll become known as the pimp. Yes. <laughs> and also I must say, people our viewers and listeners might not be aware of this, but the uh, the picture that you have attached to your Gmail account <laughs> shows you in some well, how should we say rather flamboyant attire. Yes, yes, in- including a large uh, mink coat, sunglasses, quite a bit of bling, and uh, I think there's actually a feather sticking yes, out of your your a head. Pink boa. Yes, a, a pink boa. Yes, a pink. Yes, yes. So it it is it seems vaguely pimpish. Yes. So now we find that Pete Giuliano is building a rig called the pimp. But go on. Riding a subway. Uh, that's it. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so I, I I have built it, but it's not operational, and I'm having a little difficulty. But let me uh, let me start with the good part. Uh, first of, it uses two six U eight A's and a a six CL six. That's the three tubes, and one of the six U eight A's is the BFO carrier oscillator. And the, that's the triode section. And the pentode section is the microphone amplifier. And it calls for this transformer in, in the output. You know, the, the standard plate-to-grid transformer. Right. And, and that transformer can't be found. And, and something that would be a substitute. Uh, UTC um, used to make what's called the sub-bouncer transformer. These real small transformers. They're 100 bucks if you can find them. So I said, man, there's got to be a better way of doing this. So I discovered you can take a 600-ohm to 600-ohm modem transformer, a modem transformer, and instead of putting that in the plate circuit, put it in the cathode. So it becomes a cathode follower. So you have the modem transformer connected to the cathode, and then you have the standard cathode BIOS, the resistor and the capacitor and the other lead. It works, Bill. You, you can put a dollar, costing a dollar modem transformer and get a couple volts of audio out of this. So I think that's a little innovation that if you wanted to build this thing, you'd be really stuck to find that, that transformer, the normal plate to grid tra- output transformer, and you find it at a reasonable cost. And it's really big. The modem transformer is small. So that's an innovation that I came up with that works. And there's some documentation in the internet that says yeah you can do this so first thing so it's got an audio i've got a uh, i've got a balance modulator in there i really don't like the two diode balance modulator and i think one of the problems is i i put some shot key diodes in there and they ain't, they ain't working too well so i've got a, you know i i did something similar with one of my early diodes it just seemed to me like <coughs> the shot key diodes were the way to go and I put them in there in a balanced modulator, and I could not get them to work. And I was pulling my hair out, and somebody said, just put some regular old diodes in there. Yeah. And I did, and Bob was my uncle. Yeah, so I need to just pull them out and do that. But, but anyway, I got taken over by something I spotted 
on eBay. It happens, Pete. And I spotted a national NCX5 with a linear dowel readout. <laughs> oh man. For $61. $61. So I bought that sucker and $2 worth of parts fixed it. That's beautiful. Two dollars. So I've been I've I've been looking at your 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 blog there, and I see the I see the the fun that you're having with that thing. Fascinating with the NCX5. It does have it has a mechanical digital readout. You know, like the old Vita root counters. Click, the R- they, they 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 click while you turn. Yeah, click, the click, R- click, like click, click. the R398. But it also has something interesting, and I I see the hand of James Millen, who used to do design work. He did a lot of the mechanical HRO. With the mm-hmm. gears, this thing has I got know. so many gears in it. When you switch bands to 80 and 40 meters, there's a shuttle system that switches in new digits. You know how you have the problem that in one direction it'll read, the, the numbers will go up in the other direction, like on, on the multi-dial analog analog readouts. You yeah. read it one way, you know, turn left to right and it goes up. Turn right to left yep. and it goes down. But when you switch bands, they have different dial scales. So, right. So they did this mechanically with this digital, mechanical digital readout. It's actually a shuttle system. When you switch to 80 and 10, it shifts the digits in the window. Oh, man. And and you know what? It's linear. It really is linear. <laughs> None of this stuff. This, this is so wonderful. <laughs> this is like Pete is being pulled back into the world of analog VFOs, Ex- linear dialed readouts. Except, except there's a problem that they didn't, like the Japanese, they did not pay attention to design for manufacturing and assembly. The 2N706, it's a hybrid rig. It's got a mm-hmm. 2N706 VFO in it, and they got the VFO buried underneath the main gear. You cannot, and it's got a socket in it. So I thought I had a, a bad 2N706. There's no way to get that. <laughs> out of the, out of the <laughs> they, just, they just did this to make life interesting for you <laughs> 60 years later. <laughs> I mean, I, had a, I, have, I have a pair of right angle, you know, tweezers. You yeah. could not get in there to grab that transistor to pull it out. You oh. you, you could not replace the transistor is replaceable. It's a socket. Oh, so I, I hate had, sockets and so, transistors. So I had to I had to disassemble the VFO <laughs> to replace the transistor. So, but did, did you were you able to do it? Yes. All right. Good. Down. Did you go back with the socket or did you solder it in? No, no. I I just left the socket. Okay. So interesting thing is there was a warble. When you when you would tune, even though it's mechanical and precision gears, it was a warble. And when I took the cover off the gears, they actually have two v, two capacitor sections on a common shaft. And I think when it gets to the higher frequencies, they shift to the other capacitor and they maintain a linear readout. But it's like on ten meters, it's a lot less. Yeah. In other words, to to get you the five hundred kilohertz spread, they use a smaller capacitor. And and it has on a common shaft, and and typically they have these little wiper tabs that are like brass that fit mm-hmm. on the rotor. Yep. And so I said, you know what? I bet you this thing is corroded. I hit it with the oxid, and the warble went away. Oh man! But I mean, it just 
Well, Pete, that reminds me, that's one of my earliest kind of tube-type repairs when I was getting back into ham radio in the early 90s. I picked up a Heathkit HW101, and it was going great, but the VFO was kind of squirrely. I would tune it, and all of a sudden it would start getting jittery and jumping around. It was driving me nuts, and I was going in there looking for bad components, and it was one of my early uses of the Internet for troubleshooting finally i went out and i think i went to the boat anchors mailing list and i said man i got this squirrely vfo and i've done this and i've done that and all the components seem good and i can't figure it out i didn't even really know an old timer out in arizona shoots me an email and he says hey bill give it a shot of deoxid down there in the main in the main tuning cap and especially around the reduction drive around the reduction drive Make sure the contacts are clean and the reduction drive is well lubricated and the squirrels will go away. I went in there, zip, zip, and instant satisfaction. I said, man, I, this, this was, it was so great. It was like the power of the internet, the power of tribal oh, yeah. knowledge yeah. came into the shack. So yeah, absolutely. fantastic. Yeah, so the, the thing is, this is really a, a excellent design. By the way, that thing cost equivalent today about... $5,500 back in 1960. It's a beautiful looking thing. Yeah, too. and it's heavy and it's, it really sounds good. And, and the mechanical digital readout makes a world of difference. I mean, there's a world of difference between the NCX3 where that, that dial is variable. <laughs> <You know>? <laughs> <laughs> so it's a real mechanical readout and $61 bill. And then $2 worth of parts. It had a bad diode. You know, usually they have two diodes in the AGC. And one of the diodes was, I mean, the S-meter wasn't working. So we replaced it with a 1N914. Wow. Tencent right. diode, you know, boom. Good. There you go. There you which, go. Which leads me to the, the second radio that I've been working on. And in the background on my... <clears throat> Uh, Skype is a Collins KWM1. I bought this like over a year ago and I had been working on it and all of a sudden the receiver went dead. And I could not figure out, you couldn't even hear the crystal calibrator. I could not figure out why the receiver went dead. I mean, I replaced some capacitors in there, electrolytics, and I, I didn't, you know, nothing, nothing came to mind. So I said, okay, I'm just going to put it in the shelf and I'll think about it a bit. So I said, this is a good time to pull it out. So first off, I'd like to recommend a tool that you can buy that is really found very useful. And these people who do the beads, you know, make the beaded jewelry. Yeah. The beaded jewelry. They sell this tool that looks like a oversized sewing needle. And they use it to pick up the little beads, like mm -hmm. to get your hand to get put on it. And it's about maybe three inches long and it's down to a point and it's really thick at the shaft so i use that to pick around radios and it has an insulated handle on it too which is it's like which it's is like it's like a, it's like a tiny chicken stick yes yeah <laughs> so anyway i'm i'm moving some things out of the way because i'm doing some circuit tracing i'm moving some things out of the way and it slipped out of my hand it slipped out of my hand and it hit the plate of they have three six AL five diodes in there. They're, they're vacuum tube diodes, vacuum the vacuum tube diodes of all things. Six AL five. Six AL five slipped out of my hand. It hit the plate, one one of the plate resistors to ground. And I said, "Oh man, I'm waiting for the smoke." All of a sudden, the radio came to life. 
the radio god the radio gods <laughs> yeah. have spoken so he said wait a minute this cannot be right this this cannot be right i mean normally that thing is never grounded this cannot be right but it makes the radio work so i said okay something in there is not grounding when, open. It, when it should be open so i'm looking at it and they have three relays in there and it's not just a, like a double pole double throw relay they got like eight or ten contacts on them so i mean it's spaghetti uh, each of the relays so i looked around and i said what would do it and i looked <clears throat> the rf gain control has a resistor off of one of the leads and that resist small value resistor that resistor connects to the wire and that connects to a relay contact that on receive it's grounded so i put my own meter from that resistor to ground and it's open so I traced it back to the relay and I looked and if you just look superficially it looked like the wires connected but the wire was broken off <laughs> I would have never found that I mean I've looked at it a hundred times but it just it, it, it was sitting in the wire bundle so that when you look at it so oh yeah that's connected but it wasn't and I don't know how it got broken off Anyway, that fixed the receiver. This has to be, this can't be the radio gods. This has to be the other team at work here. Yeah, this is, yeah, this yeah, is bad yeah. news. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so anyway, I don't have the transmitter working yet, and I think there's a similar problem, but the receiver's quite good. And which brings me to the point, I actually, because this only tunes from 20 through 10, I actually listened on 15 and 10 meters FT8. It's active. 15 and 10 meter FT8. Now, now forget the the FT8 part of it, just think about it. the band is open. That's a good. That's good news. That's, that's a good thing. That's that's the good part. I mean, before you used to be able to hear the CW beacons on 10 meters. I heard no CW beacons, but I did hear the FT8 signals. So the 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 band and indeed cycle 25 is delivering the promise that we talked it's about. Kick, it's kicking in. Yeah. Now. The other thing I want to ask you about is the many direct conversion receivers that are the result of your design being built worldwide. Tell us about this. Okay, so the last time we um, talked, uh, podcast, we were 72, we're now at 80, and I actually have pictures of guys who have built stuff. 80, 80 direct conversion receivers. Yes, request right. for the code. So I, I still think probably... We'll get about half of those. Maybe forty are are actually built because guys are pretty serious. They'll they'll ask me follow-on questions, and I can't understand why. Why what? Why? Why there's interest? Because they're building something. Because it's a receiver. You can <clears throat> build a receiver, which is like for me it was always that was always one of the th one of the cool things I wanted to do. This is why I struggled to build a Herring Aid Five receiver. Because somewhere along the line, somebody had told me that all true radio amateurs, at least at one point in their time as a ham, have built their own receiver, right? Have actually used something they built with their own hands to listen to radio waves. And you, Pete Giuliano, N6QW, through your design, are providing them with that opportunity. So I understand why. Well, I think, too, it's because it's the Arduino. I mean, you could have just as well put an analog VFO. I mean, a 7 megahertz analog VFO is pretty simple to cobble together and be able to use with that and, and have a working receiver. But it's the it's the Arduino 
because a lot and a lot of guys you'd say too well one guy wrote me and said well i bought this uh i bought this encoder and it skips digits so i said how much do you pay for the encoder he said 40 cents <laughs> <laughs> so spend 80 yeah. spend 80 <laughs> hey, but listen but getting back to the why to build this thing it reminds me of something that Farhan wrote a long time ago Farhan actually designed and built with his cousin his cousin was a student in electrical engineering or IT in India and so she needed to do a project and the two of them together built a simple direct conversion receiver I think it was for 40 meters and her his uncle or some other family member looked in as they were doing it and said, why, why the heck are you doing that? And Farhan's answer was, we do it because we can. We have opposing thumbs. We're the users of tools. We build things, which I thought was, was right on the mark. Yeah, I, I, I think that's the case. But by the way, can I have about 10 seconds to rant? A 10-second yes, yes. Okay. Okay, rant, rant alert on. Okay, rant alert on. Okay. Uh, about nine or ten years ago, I converted an HW101 with a digital display. Mm -hmm. So I get a I get a YouTube comment yesterday from a guy who says, "How dare you?" He said, "You cobbled up, you destroyed that HW101." Shocking. So I said, "Well, first of, I didn't destroy anything. All I did was I fixed a drift problem." on the HW101, and I put a digital display on it. He said, well, I, I, he said, if I owned one, I would have kept it stock. I said, if you owned one, you'd realize <laughs> it drifts. <laughs> and having a digital display, you know, makes so much difference. So, I mean, there are people out there that are making judgments without knowing the facts. I said, first up, before I even put the digital display, I did all the service bulletin changes. I changed all the capacitors out, changed the odor rings, lubricated everything. And when I got done, I had a drifty transceiver that you could, five kilohertz tick marks. I said, you're going to get, I get on frequency. You know, you're going to get that comment. So why are you making judgments on that? You don't have one. You've never had one. And you don't know what it sounds like. So why are you saying you destroyed it? I didn't. I didn't destroy it. Matter of fact, it took a lot of effort to make it look good to have that lcd display fit square it looks like it was made in a factory pete pete can i join you join in your rant here yes okay i was because <clears throat> i was going to rant about something similar and i've discovered this i think it's and it's been in the news a lot lately but it's it's a problem with social media and it's especially acute on facebook and I, i'm finding it really annoying and what, what it is, it's based on the fact that the algorithm for a lot of these social media sites, mostly Facebook, reward what they call engagement. Ooh. In other words, if, if you write something that causes somebody to respond, then you get extra points. They actually put a little applause symbol next to your name if you get a lot of controversy. A lot of engagement, as they put it. They've also, and this is what the person who was testifying about this this week talked about, they've discovered that anger and, um, and kind of bile is the best promoter of engagement. So you get very f relatively few messages that say, hey, that's really wonderful. I like what you did with the HW101. That doesn't provoke controversy. 
But if somebody comes back and says to you what that guy says to you, that's engagement. Oh, that's good. Listen, I had something similar, and I'll mention it now since we're, we're ranting. But I recently picked up the VFO that I wanted, that I had as a novice, the, the Globe Electronics V10 VFO Deluxe. Deluxe with an E at the end, which means really deluxe. Anyway, I got this thing, and before it came, I was looking through the schematic, and I realized it has a selenium rectifier in there. Pete, what do you usually do with selenium rectifiers? Get rid of them. Get rid of them, right? Right. That's something I always learned. And I didn't even remember why. I had this vague notion that they were somehow radioactive. They're not. It's vaguely toxic. But the thing is, they will fail, especially after 60 years. And when they fail, they stink to high heaven, right? So while you're at it, take it out, replace it with a silicon diode like a normal person, and put a little dropping resistor in there to take care of the difference in in voltage drop. The, the, the selenium rectifier drops about 5 volts per rectifier, whereas the, the silicon diode drops 0.6 volts, right? So you got to have a drop. Okay, I did it. Do you know, some guy comes on the Facebook page and makes, you know, snarky comments about how I'm defacing, it's not necessary. This very kind of, in, that, in a very kind of arrogant kind of, you know, I don't believe that silicon rectifiers should be removed in this way, defacing any rigs that are perfectly serviceable. And I, I saw something similar, I was, and I was surprised. I said, why, why would anybody bother to do that? I mean, how controversial is it? that I want to replace the silicon rectifier. If you don't want to replace your, sil your, your selenium rectifier, old man, great. Leave it in there till it blows up and stinks. I don't care. It's, just your, it's your piece of gear. But he felt compelled to kind of p poke me and say, you know, I, I, it implied that I had done something wrong. I saw something similar about a year ago, and I couldn't figure it out. When I had recapped an old radio, you know, the, the capacitors, you've got capacitors in there that are 70 years old. They're so dry, they're not even capacitors anymore. Change them out, put in new caps. If you want, you can go to Hayseed Hamfest and get one that looks like the old one, but it's new. Some guy wrote back and said, you know, this is really controversial. This is a very hot button topic. This is really, there's a lot of anger about this. I mean, come on, this is, this is like fake controversy fake antagonism and i'm i'm kind of tired of it so i'm i'm thinking about just dumping the whole facebook thing because if they want to stoke controversy go for it but don't include me do you still have the selenium rectifier i do i have it right here okay if if you still so inclined take it apart and get some paint remover and take the coating off you can turn that into a solar panel I know, a photo cell. There's all kinds of weird stuff you could do with that. So I've got, I, 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 got, I got a nice email from a fellow who was saying that in his radio club at, at high school, some kid actually did that. I said, man, that sounds like a really cool yeah, club. There you go. All right. So anyway, we rant, rant concluded. All right. Everybody chill out. If you want to take out your selenium rectifiers or you, or you want to put digital diode, digital readouts on your Heathkit HW101s, have at it. But don't get mad at us if we do it. Because yeah. there are radios. We can do yeah. whatever we want. Yeah, okay? you got it. <laughs> hey, listen, um, but, you, but speaking of problems, you, 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 you discovered that the part shortages that we've been hearing about are real. Yes. This is, a real, this yes. is really a thing. Yes. Um, and it, and it, <clears throat> I understand it's, it's affecting SI-5351s. Yes. It's, which has, of course, true. left me heartbroken. Yes. Actually, Han Summers uh, issued a bulletin that there's a replacement part that's called like an MM. 
5351, and he said they're even better, and and they're available. So there's you a know, replacement. Oh, 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 no. Oh, but, but Pete, this is going to spark noise. a huge... <laughs> we should we should start a rumor that the MMSI fifty three fifty one has phase, far superior phase, phase noise, noise statistics. Yeah. The phase noise problem has been solved. Yay! <laughs> but uh, interestingly enough, um, I have the HL two, the Hermes Light two SDR, yeah. and uh, this thing is really catching on. And so they uh, they build them in a hundred piece lot. And they had a recent build that got started uh, in late September, and more than 100 guys signed up, paid their money, and then they issued a bolt and says, can't get the parts. And they don't know when the parts are coming. They said it Bummer. May. Yeah. And, and, you know, I found something interesting. Um, they were reflecting on the automotive industry, and they said, well, you know, part of the problem is the automotive industry has failed to update the processors, so they're using this old technology, and the and the and the new plants are not building the stuff anymore. So why don't the auto guys get in line and uh, start using more modern chips? Because that's what's coming off the lines, not the old chips. Why are you blaming the auto industry? <laughs> you know, there's there's something wrong with supply and demand, and I think the problem is is us. We put so much of that stuff offshore. That we lost the ability to build that stuff, and you well, can't either. turn on the fab overnight. You know, you got plants. No, they, they, they had the, you know, they had the guy from Intel on, on sixty Minutes not long ago, and he was saying that they just can't make these kind of chips anymore. It's all going to TMC, the Ta- Taiwanese manufacturing yeah. company. There's, there's one plant over there that's that's doing most of the the kind of high level yeah. integrated circuits manufacturing there. So, um, yeah, it's a big problem, but it, and it's amazing how it is impacting on ham radio, but it's not. It's not affecting that KW1 that you have behind you there, Pete, <laughs> nor that CW rig that you built for the GQRP club. Yeah. But let me ask you this. I, I, I missed your lecture, your, your, your talk to the GQRP club convention, and I'm waiting, waiting with bated breath for the, uh, the YouTubes, to be, YouTubes to come out. I'm sure they're coming out soon. These things take a little while. But when they come out, we're all going to watch you talk about building a, a tube-type CW transmitter. Correct. Uh, the, uh, as I understand it, it won't be till January that it'll be open up. Right now, they're unlisted. If you were, if you were a member of GQRP Club, you can get access. They, they sent out the listing. Or if you had signed up, I'm sorry, if you'd signed up to participate, they gave you a link that you could watch the video, and for the general public, it's going to be in, I think, January. I may be misquoting something here, but I think it's a period of time. Anyway, it was a lot of fun, but there was a problem, and let me tell you about the problem. Well, the problem is they had everybody update to the latest Zoom, Uh so they, they were adamant. They said, you need to update to the latest Zoom because we're updated to the latest Zoom, and when you look at the presentations, it's got black squares all over it. <laughs> so, <laughs> so that's, part, that's one of the new update features. Yeah, so, so the guy that was running the show was trying to remove the squares. I mean, you, you, if you, you click like whack a mole, yeah, you clicked on it, you went away. But uh, it was kind of interesting. And the thing that I found very curious was uh, when they came to the question section. Uh, one question I got is. Tell me about using CNC milling to make circuit boards. <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> so I, I said, 
Okay. <laughs> but if you look in the... Right in time for the parts shortage. Yes. If you look in the latest SPRAP 188, you'll read, an, any, you'll read an article right by I, me I, about circuit boards. making. I've scenes. enjoyed it. I, th- I thought you were going to talk about how it cost you 250000 bucks, but I didn't see that line in there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but but other, other people, you know who may be getting a machine? Grayson. Dean. Grayson. Grayson. Yeah, I think Dean's Dean already gone. has one. Yeah, Dean, Grayson. Grayson has one. I, Grayson I, you know, I, I feel out of it. All, all the cool kids are getting CNC mills. Yeah. Well. Oh, man. The, the price is down. Three hundred and fifty bucks. That's a part. Yeah, but you, yeah, you better you better act fast because well, I mean it's too late. The part shortage is going to definitely affect yeah. this thing. Well, right. Grayson was interested in cutting the two and a half inch round meter holes. Uh-huh. He got tired of the drills in the pot. Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yes. He's taking a he's taking a huge leap. He's going from like nineteen forty seven to twenty twenty two. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, we'll look forward to those videos. That's it. Hey. Pete, you, you, so many, so many of the things that you said just resonated with things that I wanted to mention. First, FT8. I tried it. I tried it. I, I actually built the the interface board with uh, with some boards that uh, Rogier had sent me, and with your uh, TR circuit, got it to work. Got on seventeen meters. Tried it. Worked a whole bunch of stations. Worked some Japanese stations. Worked a lot of DX. Worked about twenty five countries without even trying. Look. It's just, I discovered that it's not for me. I tried it. I didn't really like it. I found that it left me kind of edgy in a way that um, that, a, that a nice SSB kind of ragchew QSO does not. And I just found it was just very kind of impersonal. It was like machines talking to machines. Now, look, this is just me. I mean, you know, I know a lot of guys love it to each his own. Knock yourself out. I just didn't like it. I found it, it's sort of, the one thing I liked about it was that it was automatically decoding the characters. We weren't having to train our brains to remember that dida is an A or dit is an E. For me, that still seems kind of barbaric. We'll talk about that in a moment. But after that, I mean, it was just so automated. I mean, it would sit there and it was even it was it was even more impersonal than than CW because if you didn't look carefully you wouldn't even know what report you gave to the other guy you certainly wouldn't know what report he gave to you and it would all automatically log and the whole thing would just sort of take off and i, I just it was not my thing i i, well, I so I, I tried it not for me well I, I discovered something i didn't know most of the time when i operate ft8 you see a station calling cq and you click on it and then yeah. the next round, it calls him. Guys have automated this. This one guy was saying that he makes 3,000 FTA contacts a day, and he's not even at home. <laughs> I know. I see. I, I predicted this. I did a blog post on it. I said, just this looks like you're just a few Python line codes away from completely automating it. You don't even need to be there. I said, has anybody done that? You just answered the question. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Okay. And, yeah. and he, he was kind of perturbed because his computer had a glitch and he was, he one day he only made 1,999 contacts. <laughs> oh my God. All right. Okay. So anyway, any of you guys have fun. So then I, I went to the opposite end of the spectrum, I guess probably in reaction to the uh, FT8. But I mentioned that I finally acquired a Globe V10 VFO Deluxe, Deluxe with an E, which means it's really Deluxe. I got one off of uh, a, fe- a fellow that was talking about it on Facebook. And so this allowed me to put together my entire 
novice, my real first novice station, which is the Lafayette HA600A receiver with dual movements. movements. Yes. With dual movements, no, no doubt. And then with a, a DX40 transmitter, which I found out has cathode keying, about 100 volts across the key terminals when everything's working right. How did we survive this, Pete? I don't understand. And then now that I added to the whole mix, the Globe V10 VFO Deluxe Deluxe with an E. So I had my whole novice station there together. I finally, and I, I, I actually made it better than I did as a novice. I mean, I, I know that I did not know how to do the TR switching as a novice. I don't know what my level of knowledge was, but I know it was far below the, what's required to mute the receiver allow for side tone, switch the antenna, and turn the transmitter on. But I, I did that. I had a three-pole double-throw relay. I rigged the whole thing up. So actually, the station that I ended up with was superior to the station that I used as a novice. But still, I got out on 40 meters, and I made a bunch of contacts. I was talking to all kinds of people on 40 meters. If I could hear them, I could work them. It was, it was fine. But you know, I, I, I just I didn't... I didn't like it. <laughs> I, I I thought I would have this sort of nostalgic feeling about my original station, but instead I was reminded about why I desperately needed to upgrade the receiver. It's no fun using a Lafayette HA600A on 40 meters. Forget about 15 meters. Holy cow! It's got a 455 kcif. The uh, the opposite, you know, the image suppression is horrible. The VFO is unstable. If you bump the workbench, the thing jumps, you know, five or ten kcs. The the VF1, the, I mean, the V10 VFO is very nice. It's nice. It also has very linear readout across. You look across the band. They 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 managed to to kind of to crack the code on this. They used a series tune clap oscillator. Well, Globe Galaxy, yes. Yeah, yeah. They and so the the and this is like 1963. 1963, this thing came out, but. The only other thing I discovered was this equipment is really large and heavy. Even the DX40, which I considered kind of a small rig sitting next to the DX100, it is small. But when you compare the size of these things to some of the rigs that we're using now, to the Bidex rigs, they're enormous. They take up huge amounts of space. They're heavy. They make a lot of heat, and, and they're clunky. Drift. And so and they drift. And, and not only that, I was also reminded that I'm no longer a CW guy. I used to be a big CW guy, not anymore. I, I can do it, but I, I don't get a lot of joy out of it in the way that I get I get from a, from an SSB or even an AM contact. So after I worked a, a bunch of these things, a bunch of these these contacts, I took it off the workbench and it's it's back up on the shelf. Been there, done that. I might take it down during novice rig roundup or, or something something like that. But that was the end of my uh, my my uh, my uh, adventure with the novice station. Um, and cathode keying. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. One good thing I did work. One of the stations I worked on 40 meters and I didn't recognize it at the time. I talked to Bill Kelsey, NADT. Oh yeah. Yeah. And I, you know, it's funny. I, I, I guess I was the victim of my own station because I, the, the, the V10 VFO was kind of cold. So I was drifting a lot when I was talking to Bill and signals weren't great. And it, it took me at first I didn't recognize it, and I signed with him and I said, holy cow, I had worked Bill, you know, and then I sent him an email and said, man, I'm sorry, I was distracted by my drifting VFO. So um, anyway, that was, that was kind of fun. Hey, but it, 
I, I, I am, I am go, going into the, the imp mode in a similar way because you are working on the imp or the pimp and I have taken off the shelf and, and people who are looking at the video can see it in the back, background there, my uh, mate for the mighty midget receiver. Uh, this is a, a receiver with three 6U8 tubes, all 6U8s, just three of them. But it is a single conversion superhead with the IF at 455KCs, designed by Lou McCoy and described in a QST article in 1966. I built mine on the chassis of an old Heathkit Benton Harbor lunchbox. I'll probably be criticized for this by your friend, Pete. But I did it. Is that a Drake, anyway, no, is that a Drake knob? It's got a Drake knob on it. I yes, it does. Got a knob from, from knob, knob from a Drake 2B. Yes, yeah. and it's got a a CD-ROM for the frequency readout. Cool. And it's 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 quite nice. But anyway, there's there's another guy, Scott WA9WFA, who is also building a mate for the mighty midget. He's been building it for a while, and he had a lot of trouble with it. So he actually, he built a second version of the receiver spread out on not really kind of alfresco style, but on a larger piece of copper clad board so he could separate out the stages and uh so he's his questions have sort of caused me to kind of go back and reconsider some of the things in my mate for the mighty midget and uh and also there's been some email traffic one thing somebody raised they said wait a second look at the diode detector in the mate for the mighty midget lou mccoy has a 100 picofarad uh, capacitor at the input to the ceramic to, to the diodes and at the output on both sides of the diodes he's got 100 picofarad capacitors isn't that kind of low for audio indeed it is so i started thinking well what should what values would be better there i fired up lt spice i used lt spice and i basically just built the the diode detector from the Make for the Mighty Midget, and took a look at how it worked with 100 picofarad capacitors at the input at the output. And then I switched. For the output capacitor, I just switched in a 0.1 microfarad cap. And boom, significantly better, a lot better. And then I tried it in the real world. I just swapped out. Actually, I put a 0.1 microfarad Parallel. capacitor across, right across, which, which makes it effectively 0.1 microfarad. Boom, a lot more audio. So there's a, an improvement that was noted, discussed on the internet, checked out on LT Spice, and then incorporated real world. Here's the other, the other thing I was working on with this thing. I was never able to get the, uh, the crystal filter that Lou McCoy described to work. He built a crystal filter using two FT241 uh, crystals from World War II. And these are crystals that are operating in the 400 to 500 kilohertz range. And he has two of them in there, kind of in a half lattice filter. And if you read the article, he's like, well, if, if you try two of the same value, you'll have a very narrow filter. If you try them spaced five kilohertz apart, it'll be good for SSB. Experiment a lot. See what you can do. Well, first of all, even, in the even at the best of times, a lot of these crystals were bad. I read. I was reading Don Stoner's The New SSB Handbook from 1959, and Stoner was saying in 1959 that I think about one-third to one-half of these crystals in the 400 to 500 megahertz range were, in 1959, bad, all right? That's a long time ago. That's 62, 63 years ago. These, these crystals haven't gotten any better with age. They've been sitting around in musty basements and stuff, so... 
it's real hard to get filters at that value and get them to work right. But then I remembered something from my Q31 receiver adventures. Why not use ceramic resonator in there? Yeah. Put a ceramic resonator in there and use that in lieu of the, no no pun intended, Lou McCoy, but in lieu of the, uh, the, the, the crystal filter that, that McCoy recommended. And so I rummaged around the junk box and I had a, a ceramic resonator that is plus or minus 3KCs. Now, not to be confused with the 3KC bandwidth, plus or minus 3KCs means it has a 6KC bandwidth, right? It could go up or down 3KCs, which is a bit too broad for, for SSB. But I put it in there just to see if it would work. It works fine. It, it really does improve the selectivity. I'm able to get good opposite sideband rejection. And so I'm going to use this, but there is another, there, there are these little black rectangle boxes. And I have the one that is plus or minus three KCs. They have one available. It's called a 455IT plus or minus two KCs. Now that would be good. It would still be about four KCs wide, which is just about one KC more than you really need. I think you need to find a CK455J, which is yeah. made for, it's plus or minus one, which gives well, you, yeah, see if you can find. That's yeah, two. that would probably be good. Yeah, that'd be two. And then because the skirts are wide, it would be wide enough. Yeah. So, yeah, all right. So if anybody has any of these parts laying around, let us know. Either either the, the 4KC one or better, the one that Pete just described. If you remember the Epiphyte. Yeah. The Epiphyte sure. sideband thing, that's what yeah. they used. They used the CK455J in there. Attention, British lit listeners. Uh, if you got any of these laying around, let me know. Hey, uh, but but this this is related to your des description of the the difficulty of changing the the transistor in the um, in the rig that you were working on in the NCX. So here's what happened to me: before I put the ceramic resonator in there, I was using one of these fancy Millen. You you mentioned James Millen, one of the fancy Millen IF transformers. Millen made this IF transformer called the 61455. It is a beautiful piece of work. It is metal. slightly bigger, metal box, yeah. little box. But if you open up that box, he's got two variable capacitors in there, fairly large, two of these really nice inductors. And it's basically an IF transformer, high Q. The Q of this thing is about 200, uh, Q about 200. Um, and so my idea... Yeah, my idea was to get this thing and tune it up right and use this as a substitute. Now, it, it advertised a bandwidth of, of about 4.7 kcs at 6 dB down, right? But then the skirts are wide, so it's not going to be as good as the, uh, the ceramic resonator. But I was figuring, okay, I tried, and I put it in there, and then I started thinking, well, let me, let me, let me tweak this up a little bit and see if I could get it so it's got decent bandwidth. So I start fiddling with the uh, peak in the two coils, and then they've got a third little screw in there that is the coupling capacitor between the two parallel <coughs> LC circuits. So I'm watching the scope, and I'm turning this knob, and I'm, I'm watching to see how it's changing the passband characteristics and, and the, the 455KC through, and all of a sudden I hear click, boop. Ooh. The screw when you're turning it, when you reach the bottom of the threads, 
inside inside the capacitor. The capacitor is one of these little cylindrical capacitors. The screw just falls off inside <laughs> the capacitor. <laughs> Thanks a lot, James Millen. Yeah. Right? Yeah. At least you could have put something where it would stop. stop. Yeah. No, because you're not even really looking to see where you are. You're just tuning and tweaking the thing, watching the scope. It falls inside. How the how are you going to get this out? Now I can see it in there. It's like laughing at me. Off, the, I, I shine a light down there. It's inside the cylinder, but it's off the threads. It's down down below inside. I try try turning the thing over, and I try putting a screwdriver on it to get it to grab the thread. So, I, but every time I touch it with the screwdriver, the pressure from the screwdriver pushes it off the threads. <coughs> and then if I try to bring the screwdriver down, as soon as I get to the point where it's on the threads, the screwdriver loses it and it falls again. What the hell am I going to do? Now, I thought about just throwing the whole thing away, but I've got the manual on it. This thing was built in 1957. The, this, this, this little eye of transformer is in itself a bit of a kind of an a useful and important you know device so i'm starting to think how am i going to do this how am i going to do this i did it see if you can guess how i did it how would you do it did you remove it out of the circuit well, i took i took it out of the took it out of the circuit so i've got the device sitting the, I, I took the case off but that doesn't do you any good because it's inside the cylinder of the capacitor i, I don't know I, I'd have to right. put my hands I, on it. I, I, well, yeah, well, here's what I did. It was, a, it, was a, it was a hazardous, scary, I'd say, gutsy repair. I took, I have a screwdriver that's exactly, just about exactly right to fit on to the kind of the, the slot on this screw that's supposed to go into the threads. And I took a very, very small drop of Gorilla glue acetone glue right uh, the acrylic super glue very small dot and I very carefully dropped the screwdriver into the capacitor being careful not to hit any of the threads and I put the screwdriver right into the slot on the little screw slug that does the tuning and I held it there perfectly for several songs playing on Pandora until I figured the glue had done its thing and grabbed it. Then I carefully pulled it up. Just turned and it. as soon as I saw it hit the, the 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 threads, I turned it and it grabbed. And I pulled it out. But that was a uh, oh, man. I, I I said some very unkind things about James Millen at that point. But um, anyway, it, it was it was kind of a fun repair. Um, Hey, I, I, I talked about some of this kind of stuff, this kind of stuff to the Vienna Wireless Society, which is Dean's club, my club too. I was a member of this club for years, on and off, but I'm going to get back into it. And we had a nice session with the, his builders group. And that was really very gratifying because, wow, you were talking to a bunch of people who are interested in our kind of stuff. And they hadn't been previously until Dean created the builders group and brought these guys in to build your super SSB transceiver. None of these guys had really done much building at all. And now he's got them building SSB transceivers. And they're going to look at a DCR? And they're going to do, they're looking at the DCR as, the, as their next project. Yeah. But it, it was, it, I, I really enjoyed the session with these guys. And I'm not big on radio clubs, but I thought, wow, these are the kind of, this is the kind of radio club meeting I'd like to go to. Because the questions were like really good questions. 
some of them were focused on stuff that you had said. You, you had pointed out correctly, for example, on your first transceiver, it's probably not a good idea to homebrew your own crystal filter, right? And they, they noticed, I was talking a lot about my Mythbuster rig with the 10-pole homebrew uh, crystal filter at 5.2 you know, megahertz. Um, and so I talked a little bit about how to do that, how I did it, the approach that I used, G3UUR, the different kinds of software, the kind of cut and try and experimentation. But it was just so great. I, I said, you know, it must, there must have been a time in ham radio where these kind of encounters were not all that unusual, where you could walk into a, a radio club and find at least a subset of guys who were actually building things. Today, it's rare. I mean, I, I, it's, it's pretty rare. But then again, we're, these rare encounters are kind of brought together by the Internet. So GQRP and Vienna Wireless, yeah. One, one, of, the, uh, one of these builders, I, I chuckle about, this guy is uh, very colorful. He has included LEDs in all parts of the circuit. So, I love it, yes. <laughs> so when you key the mic, the light lights he, up. And he's he, got a different he, color, red and green. He, he asked me a trick question because I had admitted that I used one of these tiny little boards, these LM386 boards yeah. as the audio amplifier because I had a whole bunch of them. I said, heck, you know, 11 of them for 10 bucks. Why not? Put it in there. So he, he very kind of carefully says, I wonder what your experiences are like with using this board, whether you consider it a positive thing or did it work well for you? And of course I said, yeah, yeah, we're fine, we're fine. And he, his, his face lit up. He was like, yes, yes. And apparently this had been a, 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 a cause of controversy in the club. But then I even, I added icing on the cake. I said, you know that little board, it comes with a red LED that turns on when you turn it on. He said, yes, yes. You like the... <laughs> <laughs> All right. So anyway, that 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 was that was really good. Hey, one thing I want to say, I, I'm you know, as you mentioned Sunspot Cycle and Cycle Twenty Five coming back. Indeed, it is back, and I am and now I am thinking I got to put a beam antenna up on the roof again. I I might I I'm torn. I'm still torn. I want to build I want to build my own antenna because it seems wrong to connect a store bought antenna to all this homebrew gear, but I also want to have both twenty and seventeen, and that's hard to do with a Moxon. But then again, there's this design out there by N3OX, November 3 Oscar X-Ray. And he built a dual-band Moxon for 20 and 17. He switches it. What he does is he, has a, a, he builds it for 20. First of all, he built a 20-meter Moxon. But then he has two relays. On the reflector, the relay switches in a capacitor that effectively shortens the reflector to 17-meter electrical dimensions. For the driven element, the relay switches in on the other side of the antenna an L-network that, again, matches, causes that driven element to look like 17 meters. So you, so you throw the switch in the shack, two relays up on the antenna click in, one shortening the reflector and one matching 20 meter driven element making it look like a 17 meter driven element he claims that it that it works well and that he's managed to get 17 and 20 on the moxon and i find myself thinking about building this thing but then i think not because one of the big virtues of a moxon is simplicity right it's simple this makes it a lot more complicated all right 
complicated to tune, complicated to operate it, complicated over time. If one of these relays starts sticking, yeah, then you got to go up on the on the, on the <laughs> yeah. roof. I, I I don't know. My other alternatives are just you know spend four or five hundred bucks and buy a hex beam for twenty and seventeen, or just build a seventeen meter moxon put that up there. I don't know. These are the these are the problems that home brewers face. What do you think, Pete? Well, I, I think you need to ask a question. Uh, having capability for seventeen and twenty would be kind of nice, but. Would there be one band that you'd favor more than the other? Oh yeah, seventeen definitely. So yeah, I know that's it. And seven and the seventeen meter antenna is significantly smaller than the twenty meter antenna. Yeah, and the the other piece of that is uh, when I lived in Northern California, I bought a um, a tri band vertical antenna, a twelve AVQ by High Gain, and that thing worked, and it was right during a sunspot cycle. That thing worked like a bomb. You got it up off the ground. Yeah. So so you might want to look at uh, just building a vertical for 20. You know, yeah. don't build a tri-band vertical for 20, put a little ground plane up there, and then you have both antennas. But getting it yeah. elevated makes a big difference. So yeah. I, well, I, I'd look at that, and that's just something you could entirely homebrew without, you know, spending the money that you would buy. Yeah, I, I heard a comment the other day. A guy says, this is wrong. $200 for a dipole that you can build for 10 bucks going to Home Depot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's it. It is. Hey, I, I, you know, we, we completely forgot about the, um, uh, the Shameless Commerce division here, Pete. And, but, but anyway, we, we, there, this is not really Shameless Commerce. This is Shameless Commerce, not at all. This is just talking about a new product. And I, got it, I have it in my hand here. It's Heathkit. Wow. A Guide to the Amateur Radio Products by Chuck Penson, WA7ZZE. Chuck is a, a real authority on Heath Kits and on all kinds of technology. He did all kinds of work in the Titan Missile Museum. A really interesting guy. And wow, I mean, I was blown away by his new book. And you, you guys, especially anybody who's interested in Heath Kits, tube type radios, or just radio technology in general will really enjoy this book because it's beautifully illustrated. He's got all kinds of great diagrams in there, all kinds of lore, Heathkit lore, describing the rigs. I learned things about rigs that I've had for 40 or 50 years that I didn't, didn't know. Who knew that the HW101, you mentioned this, there was an aftermarket dial for the HW101 that showed the amateur bands and showed information right in the dial. I didn't know. Who knew about that? Who knew that there were two versions of the DX40? I had the DX40. I always thought there was a DX40, and that was it. No, no, two versions. And you could look at the, uh, and he described how by checking the RF choke going to the 6146, you could tell which one you have. I've got the newer version. And then I, this one kind of got to me, and this is in long, along the lines of the criticism that you face, Pete. There's a, a section in there about the QF1Q multiplier. <laughs> Yes, I, I know. I know. I, I feel terrible. But in it, Chuck notes that the QF1Q multiplier has a really beautiful variable capacitor with a 14 to 1 reduction drive built right in. And I just said, there you go. How how could I resist? How could I resist? Anyway, go out, guys, go out and get Chuck's book. It's really well done, beautiful, beautifully done. It's a beautiful book to have. And you can get it. Just go to WA7ZuluZuluEcho.com. Whiskey Alpha 7 Zulu Zulu Echo.com. Okay. 
Okay, we, and, and I think we got to wrap it up. Uh, I will take care of the mailbag. Pete, you got to go. Yeah, I got to go. Hey, listen, can... guys, uh, tune in 10 and 15 meters. Uh, call CQ. I mean, if there's FT8 signals on there, the band is open. It's words of wisdom from Pete. Pete, you go ahead. I'm going to take care of the mailbag while you're gone. You bet. Take care. We'll see you next time. Thanks for getting up so... All right. Thanks. Thanks a lot, Pete. Thanks for getting up so early. You bet. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. All right. The mailbag. Let's see. First of all, the new Sprat 188 is out. Sprat is out and uh, and really, really a beautiful product. Just let me make sure that my uh, audio is still going. Yes, it is. We're good. Okay. All right. So Sprat is out 188. Congratulations to GQRP. Hooray for that. Todd K7TFC sent me his copy of Shopcraft as Soulcraft by Matthew Crawford. Fine business. I'd had this book before, but I was really great to look at it again. Really interesting stuff in there about many of the topics that we discuss here, about the value of building things with your hands, that kind of stuff. Uh, really enjoyed it, and thanks for sending that to me, Todd. We mentioned Dean, KK4DAS, and his uh, building his build makers group over at Vino Wireless. Um, Dean is also building a 16-watt RF amplifier based on the design by EI9GQ. I have a, a blog post about this describing... Um, uh, Dean's work on that on that rig. Uh, our good friend Jack NG2E is working on Pete's direct conversion receiver, and he's really close. He's getting some advice, and uh, and working on that. We we mentioned uh, on on the blog, the website of JF1 OZL Juliet Foxtrot One Oscar Zulu Lima. What a fantastic website this is, and it was for years kind of a. Uh, a go-to place for home brewers, all kinds of great ideas, wonderful diagrams, and, and then it disappeared. It is back, and I have links to it up on the Solder Smoke blog. Just check it out. The, the, the site is back in all its glory, so uh, to check it out and enjoy it. Uh, Tony, K3DY, sent me a link to a site that has some really cool old radio books, and the ones that we've been really looking at are two. One is uh, Bill Orr's uh, radio handbook from about from the late 1950s, and the other is the GE, the General Electric Sideband Handbook, again from the late late 1950s, early 60s. A lot of great information in there about rigs, about sideband history, great stuff. Thanks very much for sending that, Tony. Uh, Sheldon Victor Kilo Two X-ray Zulu Sierra is thinking about building a phasing receiver and ask for some questions about parts acquisitions. Good luck on that one, uh, Sheldon. It's always a lot of fun to build that phasing receiver. But I told him, I said, in my in my mind, it's a lot harder to build a phasing receiver than it is to build a uh, a, uh, a filter receiver. Uh, and we mentioned the, um, the WFSRA, the World Friendship Society of Radio Amateurs. Peter, VK2EMU, down there in Melbourne, has joined fine business. Melbourne was the got hit by a, by an earthquake here uh, in the last week or so. We checked we checked with all of our friends down there in in uh, in, in Melbourne, and uh, I don't think Peter's in Melbourne. Peter's not in Melbourne. P- Peter's in VK two, but the the folks in Melbourne got shaken up, and we we were told that everybody down there is is okay, including uh, Peter Parker and um, and Paul Taylor. And, and others down there in VK3 land. So we're glad to hear that, that everybody was okay after the quake. We heard from Ned, Kilo Hotel 7, Juliet Juliet from Honolulu. He, was, he also spotted the unfortunate repetition of the sideband myth 
in a recent video by the Antique Wireless Museum of the AWA. It's in there. Uh, it, the, the video is otherwise great, but it's, it's in there. They repeat the sideband myth. I have uh, made a comment about it, but I don't think the, uh, the, uh, the producers of the video have, have made the... It would be a simple change just to, to chop out about, I don't know, about 10 seconds worth of video, and then all would be right with the universe. But uh, anyway, he spotted it also, and thanks for, for passing along your observation there, Ned. Uh, Chris, Mike Zero, Lima Golf X-Ray, was looking at my ET2 uh, transceiver. This is the, uh, the transceiver using just two FET uh, transistors, one for transmit, one for receiver. And he asks about the variometer that I used in the receiver. And I told him that there's nothing special about it, and I actually sent him a picture about he could, how he could build his own variometer using just a, a pill bottle and some some square some spare parts laying around. So good luck with that. Our good friend Pete Eaton sent us a, uh, <laughs> talking about rants. Pete was talking about rants. In the November 1964 issue of QST, there was a letter in, in correspondence section in which the, uh, the author was claiming that it no longer, in 1964, made any sense for radio amateurs to build their own gear. He was advocating almost a complete embrace of appliance operation, which uh, we found <laughs> odd for a 1964 issue of QST. Now, many guys wrote back, kind of, um, kind of pushing back on on the assertion that that homebrew was now obsolete. But almost an equal number, at least according to the QST uh, magazines, sort of agreed with the um, the kind of the um, appliance point of view. So we, we, we have to realize that this was sort of controversial as far back as 1964. And it did seem that, that QST was sort of stoking the, uh, the engagement there, even way back when. Got a nice email from Josh Lambert Hurley. He is spreading the FMLA stickers in the UK. Actually, these are not FMLA. These are IBEW stickers. These are the stickers that say, if you know stuff, you can do stuff. IBEW. And that's the quote from Pete. I sent uh, Josh a bunch of them. He put one up in the school lab near the soldering irons. So hopefully that's providing some inspiration for the young solder melters there. Stephen, VE6STA, is getting ready to melt some solder on some projects. Fine business there, Stephen. Good luck to you. I got a great picture of our old friend Roger, Papa Alpha One Zulu Zulu, who is now back on Bone Air, back on Bone Air Island. And um, I keep saying, maybe, maybe, maybe Roger's got to get them to fire up that shortwave rig that used to operate from Bone Air. That would be wonderful. Farhan has been reading the manual of Hans's new uh, digital rig. There's a quote here. I wanted to say something about Farhan. I, I talked about him earlier. But, um, you know, we all, we've often remarked on Farhan's advice from the original BIDX-20 manual. Now, Farhan said that, quote, the builder should, upon finishing the BIDX-20, take a pause in building and spend some time appreciating the receiver that he or she has built. Always good advice. But, you know, that's advice that goes way back, and it's echoed, or foreshadowed in advice from the earliest days of ham radio. When I was looking at Dave Newkirk, David Newkirk's site, W9BRD, he has on his site a quote from the 1929 ARRL handbook. And it says, quote, And now, when the receiver has been built, adjusted, and placed in satisfactory working condition, 
it will be permissible to sit back and take a long breath. <laughs> Indeed, really good. Take a long breath. Finally, Paul, Golf Zero Oscar Echo Radio, he notes that in the um, compilation of books that were sent by Tony, K3DY, there is the Frank Jones 5-meter manual, meter manual on 5-meter telephony. And Paul wonders if this might be an indication that the 5-meter Liberation Army is getting ready to move. I can't disclose any, any, uh, any secrets here on the podcast, but uh, suffice it to say that uh, there are indications that the FMLA is getting ready to move, and the CBLA, which we are involved in, the Colorburst Liberation Army, is in full support. Uh, <laughs> okay, guys, that's it for now. That's it for Soda Smoke uh, 233. Thanks very much to Pete Giuliano for, for joining us early in the morning. And thanks to everybody for listening. Seven Threes from, from Northern Virginia. The Solder Smoke Podcast is produced once or twice a month using roadkill computers in an electronics workshop somewhere in the wilds of Northern Virginia. The podcast is available via iTunes and directly from our website, soldersmoke.com. Our blog, the Solder Smoke Daily News, is at soldersmoke.blogspot.com. Send email to soldersmoke, that's one word, at yahoo.com. Solder Smoke is listener-supported, and there are many ways you can help keep the podcast going. Please spread the word. Let your friends know about Solder Smoke, the podcast, and our blog. Put links to the podcast and the blog on your websites. Buy a copy of the critically acclaimed book, Solder Smoke, Global Adventures in Wireless Electronics, available from lulu.com. Begin all your visits to Amazon via the Amazon link on our blog page. In this way, Solder Smoke gets a commission from anything you buy on Amazon. Buy some of our attractive Solder Smoke t-shirts, coffee mugs, and bumper stickers at the Solder Smoke store at cafepress.com. If you have a small business, consider advertising on the podcast or on the blog. Our rates are reasonable and our staff is friendly. If none of this appeals to you but you still want to help, well, we have a donation button in the upper left-hand corner of the blog page. However you choose to help, we thank you for your support. Ciao, bravi ragazzi!